My name is Tommy. I'm a very grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. Uh, and I'm temporarily living in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, probably going to move out next month. Uh, as I get into my story, you'll know more about that. Usually at an AA convention, uh, after the whole thing is over, I always hear people standing in the aisles out there and they're saying, boy, the Al-Anon speaker was the sickest one of them all. Do you notice that? And they always say that at every AA convention, so. Last night I see Dennis up here and I thought, Dennis is a black poor kid from the South. He's going to be the sickest one of them all, I can tell. And he got up here and he, he wasn't at all. He's a rather normal, average guy. But then I rode in with Bruce from the airport. And uh, I thought, well, Bruce is going to take this away from me. I'm not going to have that title this time. Uh, Bruce didn't do that either. Bruce was relatively average, normal, intelligent guy. So, Harriet, it's going to be up to you. <laughs> so, uh, I got one little joke I just heard that. just heard coming up here. Forrest Gump died and he went to heaven and he was come up to the gate and St. Peter stopped him at the gate and said, You're Forrest Gump, aren't you? And he says, Yes, sir, I am. And he said, uh, well, you know, I don't think you was as stupid as, as people thought you were. And we have a little quiz uh, that we give people before you come in here because we have a special place for people who can't pass this little quiz. And so if you don't mind, and Forrest says, I don't mind. And he said, well, the first question is, how many days of the week start with a T? And Forrest Gump scratched his head and said, uh, four St. Peter said, uh, four, how'd you get four? And he said, well, it's Tuesday, Thursday, today, and tomorrow. St. <laughs> Peter said, well, I, I guess so. I guess, I guess that could be all right. He said, now, here's really a tough one. How many seconds are there in a year? And Ford scratched his head again, and he said, uh, 12. He said, Boris, how'd you get 12? And he said, well, the 2nd of January, 2nd of February, 2nd of March. <laughs> he said, well, I've got a really tough one for you now, and hardly anybody ever gets this one right. And he said, what is God's real name? Boris scratched his head for a minute, and he said, Andy. And he said, well, how did, how did you get Andy? And he said, well... And he helps me, and he walks with me, and he talks to me, and, and, and he loves me. And so, of course, they better say, come on in, you're home. Yeah. Uh, I, I was born in Indiana, up a little town called Decatur, up a little south of Fort Wayne, up in the northeast corner. And uh, back in those days, it was cold, just like it is here now. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. My father was uh, just happened to be an alcoholic, or I don't know if he was an alcoholic. He was certainly a drunk, and and he did that very well. And he was German ancestry, and my mother was German ancestry, and uh, they lived together and they battled together for 42 years all together until he died. And uh, and that's what they did all the while we were growing up. Uh, my father uh, was drunk every day that I ever knew him. I don't believe that he ever had a sober day. And my mother uh, didn't take that very well. And uh, when he would come home, 
we would know whether she was whether his being home in the condition that he was in was going to be acceptable or not and about once a week or so uh, we would see mother preparing for the battle and she always did and she would pace back and forth and she would get ready and she'd say not this time he's not getting away with it this time you know i've been holding supper for three hours and by the way if you if you came from an alcoholic home you know that supper is the biggest problem that you have because it's, it's the biggest control issue there is in, a, in an alcoholic home because the alcoholic is always required to be home for supper and he never makes it to supper 90 percent of the battles are fought over supper but uh, we would watch and then she would meet him at the door nose to nose and the only way he could get in was to hit her and we knew that was going to happen every time and the only one that never knew was mother she never figured out that that's what was going to happen and we uh there was five of us kids i have three uh, three sisters and a, and a brother and as soon as we were old enough we we headed outside and we just stayed outside and we just never came back in except when we had to my mother kept the house uh, perfectly clean for my father because for her it was something that uh, she did the nap on the carpet i mean when we walked in the house when we took our shoes off at the door and we walked around on the wood uh, side of the carpet so you didn't step on the carpet and met it down and we were always told that the furniture belonged to them and it did not belong to the children we were welcome to use our part of it to, uh, but but not to touch any uh, anything without permission and uh, she kept the house uh, meticulous she washed the walls washed the uh, ceiling she did that once a week she that's what she did that was that was her insanity and of course my father was a workaholic and a, and a, and a drunk besides and he would go out to work at six o'clock in the morning and come home and 10 11 o'clock every night and in the same condition i don't know how much of that time you spent at work but that's how much time you spent gone and uh, the only thing that you knew as a kid was you never wanted to get caught in the house and i never did and i thought that that was pretty bad at the time you know and emotionally that that's pretty destructive for a small kid but the worst was yet to come because they happened to be catholic and they sent me to a catholic school and uh, of course it's not like that anymore i'm sure it's not like that anymore but back then we had this little order of nuns from uh, i think they were german too most of the town was german and i i think they some of them two of them i think was the same nuns that hitler had uh, <laughs> but they they tried to teach us you know the the right things i'm sure that their heart was in the right place but it was just too complicated for a little kid to catch on i i just you know i tried to catch on to it and i couldn't they had, everything was a sin and i tried to figure out what was venial sins and what was mortal sins and the venial sins every little thought that you had everything you did every you know every little cuss word you said every time you did or thought anything wrong it was a venial sin and of course you get this little mark in your soul and uh, sometime you would have to go and go to purgatory and you'd have to spend a certain amount of time there and uh, unless you did indulgences and indulgences that had little prayer cards and stuff that you could say and you do these indulgences you get time off your purgatory time but where it really got complicated was they never told you about how much time was involved here and so you, you never knew when you had a venial sin whether you're going to do two weeks in purgatory or three weeks or whatever and on a little card you you know sometimes you say you get 40 hours off purgatory time but it was really complicated for a little kid and uh, and i just couldn't get on to it 
And then I got a paper route at 10, you know, and they indulge you could put a quarter in and light candles, and that would give you so much time off. But that didn't seem to be paying off because they didn't know how much time I had, and I did have a limit of quarters. So I, I just give up on the whole thing. You know, and that, that was my God experience at the time. Uh, God did not work very well in our home. Uh, of course, they taught you that if you pray to Jesus and uh, if you pray hard enough and you're good enough, every, all good things will come to you. And, uh, and that's not true when you live in an alcoholic home and you're a little kid. It's just not true. Uh, they never mentioned anything about uh, they have to pray for themselves. They have to do something themselves that you can't change them. You can't remake them. You can't change your life. And, uh, and so uh, I grew up just think, naturally thinking that God hated us. And uh, we, had, uh, we were, didn't have a whole lot of money. And uh, just like Dennis, I never had a haircut uh, except for my, my mother give us all a haircut. And she only had uh, one size bowl, so the line just moved up as she got older. But, uh, but, and, and we never went to the dentist. We never, we never done any of those things. And I kind of left when I was 12 years old. At 10, I had to pay for out. At 12, I moved down the, down the road and worked on a farm for a dollar a day. And it was better at home. I had room and board and a dollar a day. And at 17. I knew that I had to get out of that little town, and uh, and I joined the Marine Corps, and uh, things immediately got worse yet. Uh, I didn't think they was going to get worse, or could get worse, but sure enough, they did. And uh, but after I was there for a while, I really liked it. I, I began to really like the military. First of all, they fixed all my teeth, and uh, and that was really neat. Not having that constant pain in your head all the time. And then they cut off all your hair, and they cut off everybody, so it didn't make any difference what it looked like anymore. So you felt a little less conscious of that. And then they give you nice clothes, and the clothes were the same as everybody else's. So uh, for the first time in my life, I felt just like, and looked like, just like everybody else. And uh, of course, I wasn't just like everybody else, because I was just a tad crazy. And, uh, and from, living in the, from living in the city park and being, coming out of that kind of home, you're not too well emotionally. And you're usually not too spiritual, and you're usually not too well-educated. And I was none of those things. So they immediately sent me overseas, and the one thing that I never had in my home was, was love. And I really wanted somebody to love me. And I found out I, I was sent to Japan right after I went into service, and I found out that you could get somebody to love you for $3. <laughs> And uh, I, I got to say, I, I enjoyed that experience, even though, <laughs> even, though, uh, even though I had a tremendous amount of guilt, because I knew I could see my purgatory time picking up, you know. I was, <laughs> I'd never had enough quarters to write, wipe the slate clean after that. Uh, when I got back to the, I got back to the States, and... Uh, and I missed that right away. That was one of the things that I missed. And I, and I knew that I had to find a girlfriend. And I had to get married. And, uh, and so I went looking for one. And, and as soon as I got back, it was the first weekend I was back. And uh, we was out seeking, as Bruce says, we were seeking uh, sex and whatever. And, and these girls, were. we met them at a restaurant. And uh, 
there was a tall girl there and she was uh, I thought she was cute and I said to the guy that one's mine you know and I walked up to her and I said you know I've been around the world looking for you and, and uh, <laughs> And she uh, she didn't buy that right off. But I had uh, I had made a decision right then that that was the person I was going to marry. And after that, it was just a question of convincing her of uh, of that necessity. And uh, I wrote my mother a letter even uh, that very night. And and I told my mother that I was going to get married, and I just met the girl that I was going to marry. And we had a real rocky relationship. Uh, she liked to drink wine her mother drank a lot of wine and uh, but she was a cheap date and i really liked that too we'd, we'd stop by the liquor store and go through the wicker basket out front and pick out the old dusty wine bottles for 97 cents and go to the beach and uh, and that was a that was a terrific thing for me because we didn't have a whole lot of money when we was in the service and uh, after we'd gone, gone together for a year or so we went to the marine corps ball and she thought that she could out drink the marines and she tried and uh, and she was uh, she went out on the dance floor by herself, and you know, and she did all kinds of things. But the worst thing that happened to her that night was she got herself pregnant. And uh, <laughs> and she was really resentful about that because just because she didn't remember, she thought it was my fault. You see that that state drug that they're talking about now? We've always had that. That's nothing new. One that they're talking about coming in Florida, date rape drug. You heard about that? We've always had that. Uh, uh, so we got married. This was in the fifties, and the and the thing to do back then was to get married. And if you didn't, your your child would not have a name, and they would stamp bastard on his birth certificate. That's what everybody was told. So so we got married. And uh, I hadn't convinced her yet at this time that she liked me. And. Uh, <laughs> And she really didn't. But I really needed her. I mean, I really needed her. And and she always drank funny. She we would go to a party, and I would call her and say, "Well, we've been invited over to so and so's house tonight. Do you want to go?" And she would always say, "Yeah, I'll go." And when I'd get home to get dressed to go to the party, she was already drunk. And I'd say, "You're drunk already." She said, well, "I'm getting ready for the party." <laughs> And I always said that was a little unusual, and I thought, well, you're not going to be able to drink much at the party. You're just going to pass out, aren't you? And she said, no, I won't. And I said, okay. And she did. She would go to the party, and she'd drink for a while, and then she'd go out back and stick her finger down her throat, and she'd throw it up and come in and drink some more. And I thought, that's a little bizarre. But, uh, if I didn't think it was that unusual, she was Irish. You know. <laughs> uh, uh, so we had the baby, and and we was going to separate right after the baby was born, uh, because we really we really didn't get along very well. Uh, her mother was alcoholic, and we knew absolutely nothing about having a relationship. We knew nothing about life. We knew nothing about nothing, and the only thing that we knew for sure was that we could never go home. So after that little baby was uh, uh, was born. Uh, we decided that we were going to stay together no matter what. It was a decision that we made, a pact that we made. People say you can't make decisions like that, but if you're sick enough, you can. <laughs> we, 
and so we made that we made that decision. When I got out of the Marine Corps, I wanted to move back to Indiana. God knows why, but I did. I felt home calling me. I hadn't had any dirt between my toes for a long time. I missed the smell of the pigs. I, I just felt like I had to come back home. And uh, until we moved back, we from to Cave. We moved back to the big city, Fort Wayne, because she was a she was a city girl. And I got a little job at Essex Wire and. Her father had been an engineer, and she, I started coming home in dirty clothes, and I was making 80 bucks a week, and she said, you know, I really can't live like this. If you're going to live with me, you're going to have to go to school. So I said, well, what do you want me to take? And she said, well, my father was an engineer. Why don't you do that? And I said, well, that's what you want, you know. And I started out with the ICS course, and of course, uh, with my previous education, uh, reading and writing was one of the couple of things I missed. And, uh, <laughs> But, but she would come in and, and uh, how, how, do, how do I phrase this nice? She'd come in and bitch at me. Uh, and uh, I would keep asking her, how do you spell this and how do you spell that and, you know, and, and that thing. Anyway, she helped me uh, a lot with the schooling. And after we got uh, about half done with, with the schooling, she said, why are we here uh, in the end? And she said, you don't have an ocean. You don't have any mountains. Uh, you don't have any pretty lakes. Uh, there's nothing to do here. Your family's all crazy. We have nothing to do with your family. What the hell are we doing here? Ah, uh, you know, I didn't come up with an argument. <laughs> not a one. And I said, well, your family's no wellier than my family. And I'm not going to go back to Rhode Island. I hate Rhode Island. And so we went out. We bought, bought our first big book. It was the Rand McNally with all the 50 states. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and we looked through there, and I had I had my compass, and, uh, and the, they have the United States map up front, and I drew a little uh, arcs uh, to see what was exactly the middle, so we could be fair between her parents and where we was, and uh, it was Western New York, and it uh, and it looked beautiful. You could see they had uh, mountains there, and you know, and little trout streams and stuff. You could see all that stuff in the map, and it was a uh, it was the end of January, and so we decided to go. And we owed the, the county government a little money, and the sheriff was after us, and and uh, we didn't have any tires for the car, and, and I went to the dump, and we got some tires that looked better than the ones I had, and we put them on the car. And we headed for this little town that was right directly in the middle of her parents and my parents, within 20 miles. And it happened to be in western New York, about 60 miles south of Buffalo. And when we got up there, uh, the snow was about three foot deep, and it didn't show any snow on the map. You got you to be careful of that stuff. And it was about 15 degrees below zero all winter, and it was, God, it was awful. It sure made Indiana look good. And uh, first month we were there, she said, uh, I can't live here. This is just too cold, and it's just too miserable. And, and she started to drink a little bit more, and she was awful lonely, and there was nobody there that we knew. And so I said, well, where do you want to go? And she says, well, if we can go just a little further south, you know. And, uh, but if we go south here, we'll still be in the mountains. So we we'll have to go a little bit further west, a little bit further south. And we got the book out again. And it looked like Massillon, Ohio was right around the corner from there, right down around the hills. So uh, we moved to Massillon, Ohio, packed everything up in the U-Haul. And, and this is really uh, 
sick to say. Back in those days, we had the two kids to travel with, and we always had a dog and a cat. We always had pets. And she'd say, well, what do we do with the dog and a cat? And they won't, they won't travel well. And so when we got ready to go, I'd just go out and finish off the dog and the cat, put them in the trash can, and we'd get on the road. That's the kind of mind I had at that time, though. That's how, that's how crazy I was. I didn't care about anything or anybody. The only thing that I had in my life was my wife and these two little kids. And I knew that my, my family could never go back there and we could never go back to her family. And that was the only thing we had in common was that we could never go home. Until we just started to drift. And we went to uh, Ohio and, and as soon as we got there and we got a, we got a new house and we would always sell off the appliances and everything, just have a yard sale, just put everything out the front and just sell it all off. That was our motto, buy high and sell low. <laughs> and, and things really move quick like that. You don't have to spend a lot of time. And so we, we got set up in our house down in Ohio, and, and I got another job, and it was a pretty good job. And we was there about uh, two weeks. And she said, the air smells funny here. Uh, I don't think I'll ever be happy here. And I said, oh, I don't care. You're staying. God, I'm getting tired of this, and, uh, and you're staying. She said, no, I'm not. I said, yes, you are. Six months later, we head out to Big Book again. And uh, because she had a vision. My wife, when she was drinking, she had visions. Not all, not all alcoholics have visions, but people would come and talk to her. I mean, people would come talk to her all the time. And uh, she had a group of people from the past uh, who were spirits that came to visit her. And uh, they told her that she was just born too late, and she really belonged out west, and she should have been on a wagon train, but she missed it all. <laughs> and, uh, and so I said, "Where do you well? Where do you want to go? Where should you? Where should we be? Because I'd do anything to keep her happy. Because if she wasn't happy, I wasn't happy. And if we wasn't happy, we took it out on the kids, and none of us were happy." And life was just misery, and we were always suicidal and homicidal anyway. So we got out to Big Book again, and we started looking out west, and if you go too far west, you get into the mountains. And we'd already been in mountains in New York. We knew what that was like. We wouldn't gone that far. And, uh, and if you didn't go far enough, it still seemed like you, you was back home, so you had to go beyond Missouri. So we picked out Kansas, and we moved to Kansas. Moved to Wichita, Kansas first summer we got there in June the first week it went up to 105 and the dust storms started and she said I just got the pictures up again just got the drapes up and she looked at me and she said I can't I can't stand it here I'm never going to be happy and I said I don't care you're staying by God you got us all the way out here this is where we're supposed to be it's out west and we're staying she said no we're not a year and a half later, we was on our way to Toledo. And uh, we had a wreck in Terre Haute, by the way. We'd lost all our furniture and everything in Terre Haute. I had a big double axle U-Haul trailer jackknifed, and I dumped it all up the road up here. Uh, but we got, to, we got to Toledo, and when we got to Toledo, we noticed that the sun never came out. <laughs> I'm sure that it does come out sometime, but not in the six weeks that we were there.
So she called her parents and she said, uh, Dad, you gotta come and get me, I'm dying out here. And she was, she was real suicidal and she wanted to die and she always wanted to die. And she, and she always said that because every time she said that, I'd buy her a bottle of vodka. And uh, alcoholics catch on to that stuff quick. And uh, so her dad come and got her and, uh, and I, I packed up the furniture and I followed a couple of days later and uh, we went back to Rhode Island. So we, that's where we started from. Now we'd made a full circle and this only took all together uh, seven years. We've made a full circle. And her mother was a practicing alcoholic and she drank a gallon of wine a day. And she always drank a gallon of wine. She always said she wasn't alcoholic because she mixed it with ice. <laughs> and uh, wine wasn't that strong and it was watered down anyway. And my wife started doing that. But my wife wasn't as good at it as she was. And after a year and a half of that, a gallon of wine a day, uh, she started getting a little flakier than she was even before. And uh, then her father died, and her grandfather died a month ago, and we was out at the graveyard, and she got pneumonia. And uh, when we got back to the house, she had to go to bed, and when she went to bed, she was away from the wine. She got DTs, and she went nuts. She was seeing snakes and bugs all over, and she was in the fetal position in the middle of the bed just screaming, which was unusual for her. She was just in the middle of the bed sleeping. So I thought, this is something new. And... Uh, <laughs> I called the doctor, and he come out, and he just kind of looked around the door and said, she's just like her mother. <laughs> and he come in, and he, uh, he'd, give her couple, he'd give her a shot of Valium. And I didn't know that alcoholism was just a Valium deficiency up till then. And then, uh, of course, that wasn't quite enough. And then, and then we started out through the, uh, through the psychiatrist. And the first psychiatrist uh, told her that it was my fault. And he was an old German tank driver that escaped somehow after the war. <laughs> and uh, we went to him for three or four months, and she got about a shoebox full of pills from him. And uh, then he got arrested. He got in a fist fight with two cops, and they pulled him over for drunk driving. And, uh, and so we didn't go to him anymore. And uh, we went to the second one. And the second one said it was her mother's fault. And they had to go back to her childhood. And uh, she picked up another box of, uh, of pills from him. So she had two shoe boxes full of different kinds of things, virtually a zombie by then. And this went on for uh, four years. And during that period of time, she would sleep almost all day long. I would come home at night, I would pick her up out of bed and bring her out and I would set her in the living room and turn on the TV and she had a rocking chair, I'd set her in this rocking chair. I'd turn on the TV and I'd go make something to eat for me and the kids and I would feed her some soup or make her a toasted cheese or something, help her eat it. She couldn't, her hands would shake so bad she couldn't, couldn't raise her hand to her mouth anymore. And this was back in the 70s. And uh, during that period of time we'd moved four times in Rhode Island for all kinds of different reasons. I mean, big reasons. Uh, first time we moved to get away from her mother, we moved 20 miles away. But unfortunately, we moved in this house that had the wrong kind of radiators. And they were driving my wife crazy. And she thought there was evil things coming out of the radiators. So we sold the house and we carried this stuff 50 yards up the street to another house that had a different kind of radiators. 
And uh, me and the two boys hauled, hauled everything up the street. And uh, after, uh, then she went to the, the last psychiatrist that was out there. And he said, what we need is behavior modification. And she says, let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> and, uh, and so we, uh, we got out to Dream Book again. During that period of time, we'd moved four times in Rhode Island for all kinds of different reasons. I mean, big reasons. Uh, first time we moved to get away from our mother, we moved 20 miles away. But unfortunately, we moved in this house that had the wrong kind of radiators. And they were driving my wife crazy. And she thought there was evil things coming out of the radiators. So we sold the house and we carried this stuff 50 yards up the street to another house that had a different kind of radiators. And uh, me and the two boys hauled, hauled everything up the street. And uh, after, uh, then she went to the, the last psychiatrist that was out there. And he said, what we need is behavior modification. And she says, let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> and, uh, and so we, uh, we got out to Dream Book again. And uh, Walter Cronkite came on TV and he said, the uh, most livable city in the country is Tulsa, Oklahoma. And she said, God, if we can be happy, we could be happy in the most livable city. It's got to be just great there. Let's go there. And I said, okay, we'll go there. So we packed up ourselves and moved from Rhode Island to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And we got out there and we was there for the same day, bought a new house, new furniture, new appliances, all that stuff. And we moved in and we was there about two weeks. And she says, I think this was a big mistake. I can't stand it here. I'm not going to live here. And I said, this time you're staying. I don't care. By then, my son was into drugs. My oldest boy was into drugs and alcohol. And he would steal and get whatever he could, wherever he could get it from. And there was no limit to what he would do with him. He would do it with no thought of his own destruction. And at that time, I had to start following him. I would pick him up out of the gutter. I'd pick him up out of the yard. I'd pick him up at school. And he would always be so far out of it that I would always have to, it was just like he was dead when I'd find him, and I'd have to close his mouth and shut his eyes to keep the flies from getting in his mouth and the sun from burning out his eyes, and I would take him home and put him into bed. And I had her, him in one room, and I had her in another. And I didn't realize that if the mother and father are crazy, and they live a completely, totally crazy lifestyle, that the kids will too. You see, that never dawned on me until just a couple of years ago, but that's probably what was wrong with them. And, uh, but sure enough, they picked up our behavior patterns, and uh, he took after the Irish side of the family, and uh, he went with his mother. The second child took after my side of the family, and I took after my mother. We were Al-Anon types, and he started to take care of his older brother. And uh, those were the roles that we played, and then we adopted our daughter because uh, when we got to Oklahoma, because this last psychiatrist had said, if you had a daughter, your problem is that you live with all males. You have no female companionship. And you got a male dog, a male cat, two male sons, and married men. And so we, we adopted a little daughter, and, and we couldn't get a baby. So we got somebody that was seven years old. And she'd already been through God knows what. And her mother OD'd on, on drugs with uh, on Glue is what it was, as a matter of fact. And her mother was dead. She had four brothers and sisters. Anyway, we took this little girl in. And the first day that she was there, she just kind of wandered off. And uh, we went and found her and brought her home. 
And uh, that never changed all the while she lived with us. So the next 10 years, she just kind of wandered off, and I'd go get her and bring her home. Uh, but we had her, and at 10 years old, she was starting to have beer parties in the house. And, uh, and so I had, uh, I had three of them at the same time. And I thought, I'm going to check out of here. I just can't do this anymore. And because I was a Catholic, I couldn't commit suicide. And uh, without going straight to hell, I thought, still just a little chance. I won't go to hell, so I'm not going to do that. And it would break my mother's heart if I did that, so I'll just die. And, uh, and I had diarrhea real bad when I had depression, and I was always depressed. So I had diarrhea real bad this time, and so I quit eating. And it was a couple days, sure enough, I was in the hospital. And, uh, and so I laid up there and tried to die. And I laid there for 23 days. And uh, the water uh, was in my body, and it was an inch from my heart. And they said, you know, if you lay down, you're going to die. And uh, they'd strap me up, so I'd be sitting up straight, and I would lay down, and I'd rip them off and pull the things out of my arms as soon as they went out of the room. And after laying there for 23 days, I had a brilliant thought. This is a stupid place to come to die in a hospital. They're not going to let me die in here. <laughs> and uh, so I got up and I said, I called, uh, called the nurse in. I said, uh, I need my clothes. I'm going home. I need to get back to work. Things are just getting worse. And uh, I went home and it took me six weeks to recover enough physically that I could get up and go back to work. But I got up and go back to work. And that just continued on. But after that, I didn't care so much because what I found out in the hospital was that they didn't care. Because when I was laying there and I was almost dead, there was nobody there. They didn't come to visit. They didn't call. They didn't care. So when I went home, I had a different attitude, and I started detachment with no love whatsoever. And, uh, and my wife started to sink even further. And in the next three years, she sank all the way to the bottom. In the last year, uh, she could no longer get up out of bed. She could no longer get up in the daylight. She could no longer go to the door, answer the phone, or open the, open the drapes, or do any of those things. She was just a zombie, and she lived uh, in the house virtually by herself. The two boys had left, and uh, the daughter was uh, in jail by then, and uh, she was just alone. And naturally, after a period of time, she tried to commit suicide again, and uh, she wound up in a treatment center. And she didn't want to go to the treatment center. She wanted to go. Uh, well, she, what, she, what it was was really, she, she really didn't want to go to any place pleasing because we were really above that. I mean, we had a new car. And she didn't want to go to the state funding farm. So that's where she was headed. So she said, I'd rather go any place than there. So she wound up in a treatment center because I had more class. And uh, that's how we started. And I didn't want her to go. And it really made me angry. And I went out there and tried to get her back out uh, because I wanted her to die. I'd had enough of it. And she'd had enough. And over the years, we'd been every place that we could go. We went to all the doctors. We took all the pills. We went all to the marriage counselors. We went to church for a while. We had tried everything, and absolutely nothing worked. And I, was, I believed, I firmly believed at that time, that it was just a matter of time, and why prolong it? Why drag it out another month or two? And I wanted to just come home, try it again, and get out of here. And after she was gone, I was going to go. So I was going to stay alive long enough to take care of her because I felt responsible for her, and I knew there was nobody else in her life. And as luck would have it, she stayed. 
And uh, they got her involved in this AA thing, which pissed me off even more. <laughs> and uh, and she would, every time I'd go out there, she'd be hugging on all these guys, and you know, and she's up walking around and stuff. And uh, really irritated me. I mean, that was the first time in, uh, in all her life that I, I think I really didn't love her anymore. Uh, it just it just crushed me to see that they was doing for her what I couldn't have done, because they were telling her the same things I did. They did the same thing I did. I said, you know, you know, get a job, get out and get some friends, meet the neighbors, you know. You can't lay around the house like this. You got to get dressed sometimes, you know, do something with yourself, do your hair, you know. Uh, and I had all the answers for her and she just wouldn't listen. Uh, and now she went out here with these strangers. They started telling her stuff like that and she started doing it. And I thought, God, that's strange, you know. Uh, and then they introduced me to Alana. And uh, they said, well, they'll have AA in one section of the church, and it was in a little church, and Alan will be another section. And I said, well, how will I know where they are? And I said, oh, you'll find them. <laughs> so, anyway, I knew what the, I knew what the uh, alcoholics were like, because uh, we'd spent a little bit of time in bars and stuff at the low end. Uh, and uh, so when I got ready to go to my first Alanon meeting, I threw my old Louisville slugger in the back of the truck and loaded my pistol and stuck it underneath the seat. <laughs> and... Uh, Well, I knew the place would be crawling with alcoholics. I knew. Yeah. And I parked about two blocks away. I drove by the place slow first. I seen all those junk cars out there, and they all had bent-up fenders, and they were painted six colors, you know, typical alcoholic cars. And I had a new truck, and I wasn't going to park there with those guys, I told you that. So I parked two blocks away and walked back. And uh, that was my first meeting. My first meeting, I went in and... Uh, just sat there and uh, and tried to listen, and there was one guy in there, and there was three ladies in there. And the second I walked in there, I felt something that I hadn't felt in just about my whole life, was they loved me right away. I mean, they hugged me when I came in, and uh, and it just the tears just started pouring out. I just couldn't. It was just so overwhelming that somebody cared. It was the first people that I'd run across that cared. And I sat there in the first meeting, and I knew right then that my wife wasn't my problem, that the way my father was and the way my family was, and, and uh, I was just crazy. And uh, they said, keep coming back, and uh, and I did, not right off, uh, because uh, somebody had to sit home. My daughter was in and out of jail, and she was home at the time, so I could only go to one meeting a week, and that wasn't working. And uh, But my wife was going to seven, ten meetings a week. And after a couple months of that, she was starting to get a lot better. And what we both had sponsors right off the bat. What our sponsors did for us was the greatest thing that they could have done for us. Uh, and I don't know if anybody does that anymore. It's what they did is kept us separated. Because uh, we, uh, we had these brown bags filled with the stuff all the way back to our mothers. All this ugly stuff you said and I said and we did this and remember when you did that? And we had all that stuff that the first sign of any difficulties, we drag all that stuff out and throw it on each other. You know, just pour a five-gallon bucket of it over the other. And uh, and we just literally hated each other at that particular point in time. But we also loved each other. It was your typical love-hate relationship where you hated so much you, you, you know, you couldn't stand to be with them and you loved them so much you couldn't stand to be ten feet away. And, and that's the way we was. And they just kept us separated for the first year and a half. 
She went to meetings with her people, and I went to meetings with my people, and we very rarely ever talked. They talked about early communications, early this, early that. We had early nothing is what we had. <laughs> and uh, after we'd been gone for a year and a half, they, they had this little couples meeting down at one of the clubhouses on Saturday night. And uh, I'd found out that about that, and so did she about the same time, so we decided to go with that. She drove separately, and I drove separately, and I'd sit on one end, and she would sit on the other. And it was the first time that we'd ever communicated. We would communicate by sharing where we were at, how we felt, and stuff in front of the whole group, and of course the other person heard it, who was down at the, uh, down at the other end. And that's how our communication started back up. And of course, uh, with our detachment, which is what all Al-Anons do first off, uh, I, it was difficult for me to learn that because I was really, I had really, this lady had become a clean mind the last 15 years. I mean, she couldn't eat, she couldn't do nothing without me. And then just to all of a sudden abandon her was real difficult to do. And of course, I was still miserable and insane and suicidal. And so my sponsor told me to go home on Sunday afternoon and just spend a little time in the bedroom all by myself and see how I felt. And so I did that, and I just went in the bedroom on Sunday afternoon, and I spent two hours in there, and I just sat in there and cried and thought about how miserable my life was and how about the kids and about all the bad things everybody had said and thought about my mother and thought about all those things and spent the most two hour, miserable hours in, of my entire life. And on Monday night meeting, my sponsor said, well, did you do what I asked? And I said, sure I did. And he said, well, how would you feel? I said, most miserable two hours of my entire life. And he said, who was in there with you? I said, nobody. He said, the wife wasn't in there? The kids weren't in? I said, nobody was in there. And he said, well, I guess you know who's doing it to you then, don't you? <laughs> and that's, that's when I first started to learn something. And, and you hear everybody talk about the steps until it's so boring listening to the steps. And the only reason people talk about them is because they work. And, and, and we started out with the old step one. I knew I was powerless over alcohol. Alcoholics knew that. You know, been with it all my life. Knew that. Right into life's unmanageable. Knew that. God, it couldn't have been any more unmanageable than what it was. And on top of all the other chaos, we kept moving every three or four months. You know, we just keep up the anxiety while nothing else was going on. And and we got a, the insanity part uh, was no problem got up to step three and all that stuff flooded back from my childhood i said don't think i'm ever going to be able to do this one you know this is something i'll just have to bypass jumped right on to step four made my fearless moral inventory of all my character defects and i still remember it to this day and i poured everything i had into that and all my problems were caused because i was too kind i was <laughs> I was too loyal. I was too loving. I was too all these things because if I wouldn't have been like that, I wouldn't have been with all these sick people and they wouldn't have been able to do that to me. My sponsor got a big kick out of that when I read him, when I read him that. Anyway, I, that was the best I could do at the time. And we did that. And, uh, and that turn over your will and your life to the care of God, that, that just what wasn't going to happen right then. And I went to ACA meetings. Uh, Al-Anon ACA meetings for the next two and a half years. I went to three different meetings uh, a week. And I finally got through that, and I finally put that in the past where it belongs, and I forgot about that, and that's gone. And at the same time I was doing that, of course, I could put away a lot of the old religious stuff that I had, 
and finally got it my own understanding, and I did that by reading books like God Calling, Emmett Fox, all the Al-Anon literature, and everything I could get a hold of. There's more literature out there, folks, than just the books that they give you here, and I suggest that you read some of it, whatever's right for you. But through the next uh, couple of years, I got through that, and uh, steps uh, four through nine, uh, just get up the early, the old timers. Believe that God talks to you, that God actually gives you guidance. And that step 11 is the first time you'll notice where that comes into play. Because as long as your heart's filled with hate, and as long as you have all those resentments, and as long as you have all the fear, and as long as you have all the anger, you're not going to be able to hear God. It's not going to work. So by the time you get down to step 10 and you start, you start just reviewing 4 through 9 that you've already done, and then you get on to step 11 and pray for guidance by then, hopefully. Uh, you're walking with God just a little bit occasionally. And, uh, and as you do that, as you walk with God, you look for what God's will may be for you. And I think that's the time when you actually start looking for what is God's will for me? What does he really want me to do? Uh, and you can start out with some of the simple things because... It's been known for generations what God wants you to do. First of all, he wants you to take care of yourself. He wants you to be healthy. He wants you to exercise. He wants you to eat good food. He wants you to be moderate in your living. He wants you to take care of yourself, take care of your body. That's a pretty simple one. I started out with that one. I started a running program. I started an exercise program. I started an eating good program. I started moderation. I quit smoking. Not, don't be offended. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but I thought that was important for my recovery. And then as I look for God's will for me, and the way I understand it, you can tell when you're living in God's will because you're in harmony with God. And you can actually hear God speak with you. And you can actually live and walk with God. And you can tell when you're in harmony with God when everything's okay. And I found out that God didn't want me to be an evangelist or any of those things. He just wants me to go to work every day and bring home a paycheck and be nice to my kids and be a good father and a good husband and do whatever I can for the program to help pay back all that's been given to me. And if you would have seen me the first day, and my wife, when we first got here, you would not believe it, uh, the change that we went through. My son has been through three cycle wards. Uh, he's sober at the time, uh, at this moment, been sober for about 80 days again. And uh, he's the Irish, the one that takes after the Irish uh, side of the family. And uh, it appears that he's, he's going to be okay. I think he's finally, finally catching on. And uh, my daughter, she travels with the Murphy Brothers Fair. She's a carny. And uh, for her, that's good. If you would have seen where she came from and where she was at from the years when she was 15 through 20, and uh, you would have known that this is good. And she has a couple of children, and she's a good mother, and she stays sober, and she does the inventory control, and she does the payroll for the, for the fair, and they're her people. And she loves them, and she's a part of them, and, uh, and she's doing just fine. We're very proud of her. And she calls every month or so just to say that she loves us. And we are moving next month back to Oklahoma because our oldest son, well, we've been there for a year and a half. Uh, but our oldest son has got uh, was sober again and we, we couldn't live around him when he was drunk just couldn't do that uh, and we had to get out of the way and we got out of the way and he made some new friends and he started going to the little clubhouse in the town and he, 
because we were the last ones that he would ever listen to. And so we just got out of the way. And uh, But now uh, we, he has two uh, beautiful children, and uh, we've become real close. We talk together all weekends on the phones. And uh, we bought a house that's a half a block down the street from them. Don't know how that'll work out. But we're giving up what we're doing. This is going to be our last move. <laughs> Yeah. We've, been, we've been married 37 years and this is our 28th move and uh, we really enjoyed Phoenix and it's beautiful out there for anybody who ever wants to drive there except from July uh, through October forget it don't even drive through take the northern route stay out of there uh, but we have truly uh, loved this program my wife is an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous my son is an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, my daughter's doing well. I'm doing well. We walk with God. We have no fear. We have no fear of going back. We have no fear of finding work. We have no fear of anything. We just watch life unfold in front of us and watch God work in our life. And that's the way our lives are working now. When we first made the decision that we'd probably move back to Oklahoma, and my wife made the decision first, and she tells me about it later. But we really didn't have enough money to do that. And her mother, who was a practicing alcoholic for, uh, she was 79 years old, and this past January, uh, she died. We got a call that she, that she had died. And we went up to empty, uh, to go up and, uh, you know, the barrier and clean up the house. And my wife had the opportunity to love her those last 10 years when she was purely unlovable because she learned in the program, certainly, about the disease. and and that it was not anything to hate or despise and she loved, she loved her mother and she always thought about the good times that they'd had when she was kids and we got up there and there was 14 empty gallon wine jugs on the counter there was uh there was no food in the house at all not one scrap of food there was uh, more wine jugs right outside the front door there were 62 of them all together empty one gallon wine jugs and she'd went outside and slipped on the ice in the front door and fell and hit her head and froze to death in the driveway and uh, and the two girls were okay with that you know they'd done all they could they asked her she, she didn't want to change her behavior uh, not everyone gets called the alcoholics anonymous and all of you that are here can thank god that you're here because i have watched my father die and i watched my mother-in-law die and i watched people die from this disease and it's not a pretty thing not a pretty thing and uh, and i'm sure that god walks with each and every one of us in here and will continue to do that as long as we do his work thank you